Well, I want to go ahead and invite you to take your Bible and go to um, Matthew chapter 1 and stick a finger there and go to with me also to the book of Ruth chapter 4. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 1 and Ruth 4. And it's our third week into this Christmas, this Advent series um, called They're Not Supposed to Be Here. And what we're doing is we're looking into the genealogies of Jesus at Christmas and seeing the different characters that are mentioned there. And it's really a reminder to us that there are no minor characters in the Word of God um, and, and that everyone has a part there and many lessons. And so often we have that attitude of, you know, TLDR, these too long, didn't read when it comes to the genealogies, but there's some really good, wonderful things there that they declare for us Jesus' history, and then they demonstrate for us Jesus' descent and who he is, what his role is. So the first week, and I have some review slides here, uh, we learned some lessons about genealogies, that Christmas is the continuation of the Old Testament story and God's redemptive plan to rescue a wayward people, that Christmas is connected to the covenants, um, that he put that in there, especially in verse 1, that um, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The, so he was recognizing those titles, the anointed one, the royal lineage connected with the covenant of Abraham. And then that Christmas is not just about those main figures, that there's no minor, minor characters and then last week, we looked at this other lesson we learned from the genealogy, and we saw in three of the five ladies mentioned in Matthew, Matthew's genealogy that God accepts the sinful and marginalized into his family. And that's really that, that God takes the sinful and marginalized and invites them to be part of his family and demonstrates that for us in here. I mean, it's just an incredible thing that, um, that five women in a... In, in a ancient Near Eastern genealogy would be named, but then women who have Gentile associations, questionable character, uh, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba are mentioned there in there. It's just an incredible thing. And so we learned from that last week that God accepts those that others reject. Let me use that rose illustration. And that God chooses to use the most unlikely people and then that God's people treat them, should treat the marginalized with dignity and honor and grace and kindness. And then we finished up last week that Jesus' family, Jesus is the Savior of all peoples and invites them to be part of his family. Um, so Jesus' lineage is, is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, Gentiles, and Jesus' family today is comprised of all those as well. But then there's another character in verse 5 of Matthew 1 that I want to focus in on today. And we'll talk about this as it comes to the um, Christmas story. So Matthew 1, we'll review here going up to verse 5. This is God's word. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and the, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashashon, and Nashashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, 
and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then it goes on with the others, and it comes to Mary, Jesus being born in verse 17. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We mentioned how you go to the, 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 the um, Church of Nativity in Bethlehem today, or look that up online, there's a star where the traditional spot of Jesus' birth is with 14 points on the star from this passage here in Matthew's Gospel. Well, let's pray, and we'll dig into this. Father, we thank you for this time to dig into your word, and I ask for filling, for enabling, for you to work, and Lord, I pray that you would just bless us through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what does Boaz and Ruth have to do with the Christmas story? What in the world does that story have to do with Christmas? Well, the reason, the, 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 what it has to do with the Christmas story is not just in the genealogies, but in the theme of the book of Ruth. There's a word that's used about 23 times in the book of Ruth. And that is the word redeemer. It's a book about hope and renewal. Someone who goes out, comes the beginning of the story in bitterness and comes, ends the story with hope. Um, there's two books in the Bible named after women, Esther and Ruth. I was actually reading recently something of, of uh, um, uh, Warren Wiersbe did a compare and contrast to the two stories, which I think would be a great... I love the book of Ruth. Um, and so it's really hard for me to do one of these. Like, hey, let's look at this theme. And not, so this would be a great study at some point. Um, and, and so, but it's a great story. But what, what, what about Christmas? I mean, and, there's, and you think, well, that's such an ancient story, way beyond the time of the story of the Christmas story. What's that have to do? How is that relevant to us? And, and there's actually a lot of things in the book, of the book of Ruth that are extremely relevant to our day. I mean, there is um, an interracial friendship here. There's immigration. There's debt and loss of family. There's the um, government's role in domestic aid. The consequences of incest. There's uh, issues of gender inequality. There's discrimination because of age or ageism. There's ideas about welfare or and uh, God, how things God put in about uh, systemic economic poverty. Uh, when someone's or but so it's okay there's all that stuff and that's pretty relevant that's very modern but what about Christmas well I'm glad you asked so let's go to the book of Ruth and so one of the first things we'll see as we come to the book of Ruth of what it has to do with Christmas is in the beginning of the book in verse 1 in the days when the judges rules, now that's the gives us the time frame that this is sometime during the time of the judges, and so this is a very bad time spiritually, about very low time in Israel's history. And so there's this one bright spot here. Of course, you know the thing when judges, the ever man's doing that which is right in their own eyes. And so there's this kind of independence and a downward, a low ebb spiritually in Israel's history. The spiritual temperature is pretty low. And it says, in the book of Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. So it starts in Bethlehem with Elimelech leaving Bethlehem and then coming back to the land. 
And that's where we're at. Because we know Bethlehem, house of bread, the place prophesied. We read that in the scripture reading. Josh read that for us. The promise the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. And so that's one of the ways we're seeing Ruth and Boaz in things. So um, I mentioned that the, the word redeemer is mentioned 23 times uh, in the book. But there's, uh, this is a story, and stories come in scenes. And there's four scenes in the book of Ruth, and, and they kind of follow really well with um, the chapter divisions, which is actually a, a very good thing here. So uh, the first beginning of Ruth, it gives us an introduction, introduces the, what's going on here and how um, Elimelech takes his wife, um, Naomi, and they go to Moab. In the country of Moab, that should bring some reminders. The Moabites were, you know, the story when Lot and he's drunk in the cave and his daughters and one of the Moab is one of the ones born to that, and they're like enemies. And this is there's, there's like this is a very you don't cross these paths with the Moabites. In fact, even in Deuteronomy, it talked about how the a Moabite was not allowed to enter into the sanctuary. Um, and so, but they go there, and so they 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 leave, and she is known throughout the story, Ruth in verse twenty two, Ruth the Moabite. And if she's referred to that as that title, Ruth the Moabitess, several times in the book of Ruth. So this is a story about immigration. Immigration's a hot topic. It has been for a long time. It's a story about two immigrant women, one that's immigrating back home and the other that's immigrating to a land she's not from. And so um, after being t- gone for 12 years, and Immigration is something that takes tremendous courage um, to leave one place and move to another. I I don't know how many of you are are dorks and geeks like me, but um, and there's so many awesome things from watching the um, the funeral of um, President Bush 41 recently. One of the things I thought was cool was um, Ronan uh, uh, Tynan, one of the Irish tenors that sang. You know he's uh, on his uh, um, legs, and you know, just just an incredible story. But um, if you like the when he sang with the Irish tenors, one of my favorite songs that the Irish tenors sang was um, Ellis Island. You know that song, Ellis Island. You can look it up and stream, don't do it stream it during the service, but wait till afterwards. You can listen to it on the way home. And it's a song that the Irish tenors do, and they tell the story of this young girl during the potato blight coming to coming from Ireland to America coming through Ellis Island and how she's coming to this Isle of Hope, Isle of Dreams. But while she's coming to this Isle of Hope and Dreams coming to, to, to America, she's remembering an island of tears and hunger, but where family is of, of home. And so and it, it just kind of captures this idea of this, this a young girl immigrating and things. So... Um, and we need to rem- be reminded of this because, you know, most of us, I'm assuming, are, you know, fourth, maybe third, fourth generation Americans to some extent. And we're reminded that, w- that immigration is a very important thing and that we are a nation of immigrants and a state of immigrants. Um, the, those of you most America, most in West Virginia, there's kind of three main threads. There's kind of those uh, northern and southern European immigrants and that, that Scotch-Irish influence coming through Ellis Island into this part of the country. There's also the Italian-American immigration, uh, that Southern European immigration in the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
um, in especially this part of the country of, of West Virginia. And then there's also the African-American descent coming uh, up from southern states after the war to escape Jim Crow coming up to the West was now West Virginia um, West Virginia, after it became a state in, 19, in 1864, one of the first things they did was they set up an immigration commissioner and actually tried to get a lot of northern and very hard because of you know transportation and things like that. And, of course, a lot of the timber and coal and up the railroad especially opened the way up for a lot of that to come. In fact, there's that famous painting of Clarksburg from 1898, and you see it around town a lot. Um, in fact, the, uh, the Zacharias have it in their coffee shop, a copy of it in their, uh, it's kind of a, an 1898 paint of Clarksburg. And that was actually used in a 1925 brochure advertising, trying to recruit from the, the Sons of Italy uh, group that was here, recruit immigrants to come to Clarksburg from those places in Italy. Um, such an, so immigration is part of us, and of course the railroad, the natural resources, the FBI, many other things have spurred that. But it takes tremendous courage to leave someplace. But why, why would they leave? So I, it tells us that Elimelech takes his wife and leaves because of a famine to go to Moab. So they're, they're leaving looking for hope in a better place, looking for prosperity, for food, and looking for something. People don't immigrate from one place to the other thinking it's going to be worse. Um, they're looking for something better. And so he goes. And the, but the, the, the bad part of the story is this, that it seems like we don't know a lot, but it seems like Elimelech is not only leaving Bethlehem, but he's also leaving the God of Bethlehem. And, and, and I say that because I'm making some, uh, some educated guesses here in that both of his sons take on Canaanite names. And both of his sons marry Moabite women. And isn't it funny that sometimes when we leave God seeking what we think is going to make us happy, we end up getting what we thought we were leaving. So they thought they were leaving poverty and hunger and death. And they go to Moab and what ends up happening? They end up being poor, and death that comes to not only Omelech, but he also his two sons. And here Ruth is, seems like she's been faithful to the God of the Bible, seems like she's been committed to her covenant to God, and, um, and, but she's without hope at this point. And she, she has two daughters-in-law, no husband, and two dead sons. And so she's a widow here. Um, and so what does she do? I mean, she, what, what options does she have? Well, she can go back. She can uh, go back to Israel and work in fields. But the, the Bible's told us here she's old at this point. So there's a, there's a certain point that you're not able to do that anymore. She could remarry, but she's too old. And because in that day, their marriage wasn't as much about companionship, but more about procreating a family and bringing about heirs and. Well, or she could be supported by her children. But both her sons are dead. So what is Ruth supposed to do? She could rent or sell their land out. But it seems like they've already done that when they left the first time. Naomi's without hope. She's economically without hope. Family-wise, she's without hope. 
Everything she thought that would bring meaning and significance in her life is now seemingly gone. So she's even spiritually without hope. And when she comes back, we know that because she tells people, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Meaning she's bitter. Just God has not dealt well with me. And that is such a temptation for anyone who's lost what they thought they found their significance and hope in. Um, And so... So that's how the story opens up, but I want you to go to the end of the story, and this is where I want to kind of zoom in on. So um, this is where your finger is, hopefully, Ruth chapter 4, I want to look at verses 13 to 17, here's how the story ends. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And when the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Such an awesome ending to a bitter beginning. So how does bitter Naomi become restored and happy? And the answer is, The word that I mentioned that was used 23 times in the book, a redeemer. How is she restored? She, because of a redeemer. And so in this story, there are types of a redeemer in Boaz and then a type of the redeemer that pointing to Jesus. And and this week, I love, I'm I'm always learning something new. And I was actually um, uh, learned this from Tim Keller this week and that there's three redeemers in this. And it just kind of, I'm excited about, I'm excited about sharing this with you. So, um, so there's four scenes in the book of Ruth, four scenes of the story. So the first is a setup there in chapter one, what's going on, they're there. And then we come to chapter two where the second scene picks up where, so um, Naomi comes back to Israel. She tries to tell her daughters-in-law, hey, don't come with me, nothing here for you. You got moms, you got dads here, stay here. Because she's thinking that's where security, that's where hope lies, is in family. Your family's here, I don't have family here, I'm going back to where I'm from, you stay here. So uh, Orpah does so, and Ruth doesn't. And that famous line, those, 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 those verses there in chapter 1 that we often hear, often at weddings, uh, how your people are going to be my people, and your God my God, and where you lodge, I'm going to lodge, and where you go, I'm going to go. And then we kind of leave off the last verse of what Ruth says, because it's not as encouraging and isn't fitting for weddings to talk about death. But, um, but, 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 but so it's just this awesome thing. And so Ruth goes with Naomi back to Israel which is an incredible thing, a really incredible thing. She calls God by his covenant name. She's essentially saying, this God, I want to be my God. It's like she's basically taking a a baptismal promise. Like when someone gets baptized, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes, I do. She said, he is my God. He is my, I'm going to make this God my God. And she comes with Ruth. Now, it's an incredible thing because, because Because Ruth is going with Naomi back to Bethlehem. 
But there's not a promise of a better life economically. There's not. I mean, her financial security is with her parents in Moab. But she knows that if this God's going to be her God, she needs to identify with the people of this God and go with her mother-in-law. What an incredible in-law relationship there. Do you think about that? I mean, if your husband passed, would you want to go live with your mother-in-law? Or vice versa? Um, I mean, there's a ton of mother-in-law jokes that come to my mind that uh, I, for sake of brevity, I'll, I'll let them go. But, but they're fun, right? Um, and uh, it's just an incredible thing that that relationship, I mean, that's a kind of a side lesson here is the relationship. And, and I don't know, it doesn't say. Uh, uh, maybe Ruth, as she was there, um, saw Naomi's lifestyle. Maybe at some point Naomi wasn't as embittered towards God and, and that there was something that drew her into that relationship with um, the, you know, the true God with, to Yahweh. I'm not sure, but there's something there in that relationship there. But anyway, so chapter 2, we see that Ruth meets Boaz as he's gleaning in the field. And now see, um, in this time, God had set up some laws um, to help protect the marginalized. And even those that were immigrants, or what the Bible uses the word sojourner, you see it translated that way in some older translations. You see that in some newer translations, the stranger. And basically that's referring to the immigrant. Those are from out, those that ain't from around here. And that God had built that in there for the poor. And so one of those was that landowners were not allowed to maximize on their profits. Now, I'm as conservative and capitalistic as they come. But sometimes when I read that, I'm kind of like, and I was reading this guy named Matt Chandler this week, and I love this line he said. He said, when you read something that just makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up, but it's in the Bible, rather than thinking, well, that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up, you might just need to shave your neck. <laughs> so I thought, that's pretty funny. So when I, so when I read that, I'm like, ah, I just need to shave my neck a little bit there. That God built in that these landowners were not allowed to maximize their profits. They needed to leave the corners of the field for the poor and the sojourners not to get a handout. They had to come work and glean it themselves, but, they, but to, for them to come and be taken care of. And God built that in. And so Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, and she comes just by chance to this man named Boaz. The corners were left for the poor and the stranger. And this highlights, and, and, and so Boaz sees her, and he, he says, daughter, don't go gleaning in other fields. And he warns his men not to take advantage of her or touch her. Now, God had built this rule in, but remember, this is a low point in the time of Judges, so there's a lot, and there's all this tension. There's also this racial discrimination here. This is Moabite woman in Israel now with her mother-in-law. She's not going to be treated well. She's not going to be treated with respect as a woman, and so, and Boaz knows this, and I think his mama probably taught him something about this, because remember who Boaz's mom was that we learned about last week? Rahab, someone who literally was on the outskirts of society and on the wall. And so he had had a mom like that. So maybe there's a little tender spot in there. And I just love that, a story about Boaz in that way. So, but he says, hey, I want to make sure he takes her. So, and, and actually gives, him more, gives her more than she needs. She goes back and, and, and tells Ruth. And Ruth is like, do you know who that is? He's our kinsman redeemer. Now there's some... 
background historically and culturally here that I'm not sure I get totally. Uh, but the gist of it is this, that God had built two different provisions in the law to give second chances to families. Remember, the, the land was split up amongst families and by tribes and things like that. And so one of the things that God had built in was every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. And at the, now, 50 years is a long time. I mean, a lot can happen in 50 years in a neighborhood or a town. And so as certain families would gain wealth, others would lose wealth. And so they'd have to sell off land. Others would amass more land. And, and so God, maybe God had that built in. He didn't want to have this huge distinction between his people or whatnot. But every 50 years, uh, everything got, kind of got reset back to whose land was whose land. Wouldn't that be kind of cool if they said, hey, Whatever your family's land they owned in, you know, 1940, it goes back to yours. That'd be kind of cool, right? You know, you're like, you know, all of a sudden you went up to like, and for a lot of people, they're like, no, 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 I'll keep it the way it is right now. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, there, there's something there. But that, so the year of Jubilee, and the other one was the kinsman redeemer. And there's a couple different things. One was the land side of this. The land side of this was that the land, if you, if you got, it, you know, kind of, uh, it, it, struggling financially and you had to sell or rent off the use of your land, uh, a kinsman or a, a relative, the close relative, could come and purchase that back. Uh, it could be brought back. They could redeem it back for you. The other was with marriage, and there was things called leave right marriage, and you've heard lots of stories about that. Even Jesus talked about that with the resurrection and things like that, and it was the idea that if someone died, that their close relative would take the widow and father a child in that person's name so that their inheritance would still be passed on in, the, in their name, not in their own name, but in their own. So, so we saw in Tamar last week that that was the thing where Judah was not really doing right by Tamar, and she you know, manipulated things in her own way, but Judah was still in the wrong for not making sure that, 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 that Tamar's husband, and then of course we saw that with the twins that are born to Tamar last week. And so th- that's the other thing. So the kinsman redeemer. And that's what, so they're excited. This is a kinsman. So we come to the third scene of the book of Ruth. This is in chapter three. And this is where, so Naomi tells Ruth about this, uh, that he's our kinsman, tells her what to do. And uh, one of these days, maybe we'll go through the book of Ruth. And uh, I know we have uh, young ones in here, and, and I'm still trying to figure this out on myself, but she goes and does this odd thing where she goes in in the middle of the night on the threshing floor, takes the blankets off him and covers, co- goes on his feet and, 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 says, and says to cover me with your wings. And it's, it's basically a very um, bold and uh, strong way of saying hey, hub, I want you to marry me, you know, type of thing, you know, or, or you know, uh, w- w- marry me, essentially, that she's kind of proposing that. And Boaz, being an honorable man, uh, goes, and we come to the fourth scene, chapter four uh, of the story, Boaz goes to the gate, which is where they did the business, and there is a closer relative than him, goes and talks to him about the land, and th- that relative doesn't want to do it, so Boaz offers, so he purchases the land back for Naomi, take, absorbs the debt, and marries the widow, Ruth. He ma- this is an incredible thing that Boaz does. This is, I'm going to build up to this. He marries a Moabitess. I mean, Deuteronomy 23 
explicitly said that a Moabitess, a Moabite, couldn't enter into the assembly. But there's a few exceptions to that we see in the Bible. We see like, like Rachel and Leah. We see that in Tamar. We see that in Ruth. That God has, and I think what it does is it highlights for us. Now, and, it's, it, and he does it with approval. The elders are there in chapter 4, and, and, and they say, hey, maybe she'll be like Leah and, 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 um, and Rachel, and maybe she'll be like that, and that God will open up her womb. Um, um, but I think it also highlights for us that God's heart has, God has always had a mission's heart. God has always had a heart for missions and his from the beginning was to bring those outside that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to all the nations and to bring all the nations under him to worship before the throne that God has a missions heart that it's always been there and there's that impetus in God's people of missions should be part of our heartbeat should be part of our DNA and so um, what happens when Ruth to Ruth when she marries Boab and this is cool and we're going to get there and we'll give, give away this but when Ruth marries Boaz, immediately, immediately, when she marries Boaz, all of her debts are gone, and all of the wealth of Boaz is now hers, automatically. You see where this is going? His wealth becomes her wealth. I mean, legally, and immediately. So Boaz is a picture for us. He is a redeemer. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's a picture for us of what Jesus is to us in Bethlehem. But then, this is the one I had never seen before. There's a second redeemer. In verse 15, you're in chapter 4. He shall be to you a restorer and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Naomi's restored, and they're looking at this restorer came by your daughter-in-law. And two things about Ruth that they name is she loves you, and she's better to you than seven sons. Um. How many of you are fans of the old musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Okay, it's kind of a, I love that one. It's just kind of fun. I love the big baritone voices and all that stuff, and it's just a really good one. But anyway, but that whole seven sons type thing, that's kind of an old way. Seven's that number of perfection. That's just kind of a euphemism for the perfect family. Seven sons is like the perfect family. I mean, and I guess in American terms, there'd be 11, so you have a full football team yourself, but Seven Sons is saying the perfect, she is better to you than the perfect family. The perfect set of sons is one daughter-in-law is better. And really it's pointing to that Ruth herself is kind of a redeemer, not like Boaz, but in a different way. And so she becomes a a hero or a heroine of the story. And because sometimes we miss the obvious, the book is not named the book of Boaz, is it? It's named the book of Ruth, which is an incredible thing that there's only two books in the entire Bible named after women and one that's not even named after an Israelite woman. So here's this Moabite who gets a book in the Hebrew Bible named after her. 
that I think it elevates that. So here, this daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons, that she pictures for us what Jesus did in suffering for us. She also pictures for us what it means to come to Jesus. I want you to go back there to chapter 1. Chapter 1, when um, Orpah kisses Naomi and leaves, verse 15, she says to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, and here's these famous verses that we often use at weddings, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. She's basically saying the covenant, she uses the covenant name for God. That I am committing. I believe in him and I'm going to be one of God's people. He's my God. And so if you're going to be with God's people, if you're going to be connected to God, you're going to be connected to his people. Okay, no lone rangers here. And then he says this, and this is the one that we off, verse 17 is where we often don't do this one at the weddings. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. Ruth was not expecting a better life in going with her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem. She was expecting to die there. And really, that's what it means to come to Jesus. I hear a lot of people say, well, I want to try Jesus, and I'm going to believe in him. You know, maybe if I try and I get saved, maybe things will get better for me and family and marriage. And, and you know, and sometimes that happens, but that's not why you come to Jesus. And often when we're, when we're looking for Jesus in that way, the thing that we're hoping will be the result is really what our God is and not. And it's kind of that prosperity light thinking that we're thinking, if I come to God, I'll make a bargain with him. He'll give me this or give me that. And that's just not how we come. We, come, we should come to Jesus like Ruth does here, where she's saying this, but um, the key that I want to point out to how Ruth is a, is a picture for us as a redeemer is that in order for Naomi, Naomi has nothing. She, her sons are gone, her husband's gone, her land's gone, her wealth is gone. In order for Naomi to have a name for herself, an inheritance, in order for her to have wealth to herself, in order for her to have a family again, Ruth has to give up all of hers. Ruth has to give up her family, her land, her background, and come with Naomi. And essentially, Ruth is giving her life for Naomi's. And that's the picture of Jesus for us, that Jesus gave up his life for ours. So what does the story about immigration of two women have to do with Christmas? Well, there is a story, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Christ became the immigrant to earth. He came from heaven to earth so that we might become legal residents of heaven. And he left his father's throne above, as the hymn says, as Wesley puts it there. 
But then, so that's the second redeemer. The, the, the ultimate redeemer is this, when it points to Obed, the, the ultimate redeemer is pointing to a descendant of them that would come in Bethlehem. And so the real redeemer that this is all pointing to, where it really gets to, is that there is the, this redeemer, the promised child to be born in Bethlehem. And that's where Christmas comes in. And that's where all of this comes together. That we need a redeemer. He has promised that the Christ child in Bethlehem will be a redeemer like Boaz, and that as soon as we believe in him, our debts are canceled, he absorbs it, and we get his wealth. And like Ruth, he is the redeemer who left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, you know, as the hymn says, and he came and gave up himself so that we could, he gave up his life so that we could have life in him. And so here's the point. Here's the lessons. You need a redeemer. You need a redeemer. So we are without hope like Naomi. And what we might think gives us satisfaction ultimately doesn't. The economic, family, anything, we're without hope. And you might be here and just bitter and empty like Naomi. And you need a redeemer who is like Boaz but better than Boaz. And like Ruth but better than Ruth. He is our Redeemer. He is Christ. That He immigrated from heaven so that you could, to earth so that you could immigrate to His kingdom. And another thing I think this, this story highlights for us in seeing Ruth and Boaz in the Christmas story is that it just, not, not to be cliche or read the sign. But it's to center us on the gospel, that it's the gospel that centers us and the gospel that is what really defines for us and makes our identity in this because the gospel's greater than anything else. I mean, that, that, that she says, Naomi, your daughter-in-law and what she's bringing for you is better for you than seven sons. The perfect family. Life, the Redeemer, is better than the perfect family. That this is better than the all the economic stability and security, all of that, this is it. So that our, her identity is in the Redeemer, not in children or marriage or even how culture defines people. I mean, it wasn't what, whether she was a Moabite or not a Moabite or where she was from, but, but in the Redeemer. That was the picture. That was the thing. And so what defines you, what centers you and me, is not what nation we're from, not what group of people we are, not what our marital status is, not what our economic status is, not whether our kids are super well-behaved or not well-behaved or we can't have kids or we don't, or, 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 or our kids are all gone or grown or gone and left. Whatever it is, our status, our identity is in the gospel. Not our class of people, whether we own lots of land or whether we're out gleaning on the corners of somebody else's but in the Redeemer, not in the economics or anything else like that. Our status, our identity is in the gospel. And if the gospel is at the center for us, if we are gospel-centered, then all of those other things aren't going to be things we get hung up on. It's about the gospel. So when we see other people, it's not going to be, well, they're this way and I'm this way, or our style is this and their style is that. No, the gospel centers it all. And it's also going to allow us to break those barriers 
and to be free to move outside of those barriers, like Ruth, like Naomi, that the, the, the gospel transcends all of those barriers. It says there that his renown or his name will be great. And this is the real redeemer. This is the one that Jesus, he came from heaven to earth so that we could not bear the judgment, so that we would not have to pay our own debts because we couldn't. He paid it all, all to him I owe. He is our redeemer. And, and what's so cool is that Naomi ends up getting her life back. But she gets her life back not because of something she did, but only because of the Redeemer. She would and planned this. And all the things that she probably was searching for in life and leaving with, with her husband, Elimelech, to go to Moab to try to find security, uh, um, uh, food, family, inheritance, all that was gone. But in the end, in the Redeemer, she ended up getting all that anyway. So now she has a baby in her arms as the story closes. She has wealth. She has her debts canceled. She has family. She has her kinsman redeemer nearby. She has her daughter-in-law who loves her. And I think there's a lesson for us that if we give our lives to Christ, he knows what we have need of. And there's that verse in Matthew where he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, if we go searching for those things, Often that's where our real idols are. But when we're like, I'm just going to serve Christ. I'm going to focus on my Redeemer. He, he gives all of that back to us. And so there are so many good lessons in this story. Um, so if there are others in your life that you following Christ, they're saying, hey, we're done with you. We're not following you. Go to the Redeemer. Um, so what does all this have to do with Christmas? We need a redeemer. Christ is our redeemer. He promises that he, if we come to him, he takes our debt, gives us his wealth. That he, like Ruth, he left his father's throne above. That he leaves his country, empties himself, gives up his life so that we can have his life. And he gives us this promise of Messiah in here. If we'll believe on him, the child born in Bethlehem.